0: Well, you all look cool this morning. Yeah, we well, that Coeur d'Alene triathlon, that was hard this morning. I barely made it back in time for church. Someone of you will ask me, did you really do? That? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see you this morning, and um, it's a good place to to stay cool and worship God together. So let's begin by praying. Would you join with me, please? Father, we praise you that... Heaven is your throne, and the earth is your footstool. And you are raised up high and holy above the heavens, above the sea, and the dry land, and all that is in them. And you have made us for the very purpose of declaring your goodness, declaring your grace, your mercy, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and on Sunday mornings together, With one voice bringing glory to you singing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs Singing and making melody in our hearts to you and to one another and we ask that you would please accept Our worship this morning because we do not come And we never do come In our own righteousness, but clothed only in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us By his death and his resurrection and is returned to you. So as we turn to your Word, we pray that you would teach us, that we would be students, that we would be changed and transformed as we look into what the Spirit of God has to say for us. That we we would be transformed from glory to glory, in His name, Amen. I am going to ask you to please turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 16. Our text this morning is john 16:16 16, 16 through 24 if you have a bible with you i invite you to turn there and while you stand i want you to do something we have not done in a long time i would like you to greet each other would you stand and greet each other in the lord if someone that is sitting next to you you don't know introduce yourself say hello to each person this morning Okay, can we come back, please? Very good. Wow, a lot of pent up welcoming there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Glad we were able to do that. I saw some hugs and handshakes, and praise God, that's uh, we were to greet each other with a holy kiss and a holy handshake, and it's good to, to do that this morning. All right, the Word of God, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24 invite you to pay attention to the reading of God's word, if you would please. The words of Jesus. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, A little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. And God's people said. Thanks. Be seated, please. When I was a little boy, I... This happened particularly after church. Um, My mom would say to me, "In a little bit." Mom, when are we going home? In a little bit. (laughs) Mom, when are you going to stop talking? (laughs) In a little bit. Or if she would take me somewhere out in town shopping downtown, she got talking to one of her friends, and we had to be somewhere. Mom, when are we going to leave? In a little bit. What, What does a little bit mean? How long is a little bit? And I would get frustrated to no end that my mom would want to just continue talking and talking. She was a wonderful, sweet lady, full of grace, and and um, people loved her, so she loved to visit with people. But as a young boy, I didn't understand that at the time, and I wanted to know, when are we going to get out of here and be able to go home? The disciples are experiencing the same kind of frustration. Jesus is talking to them, and he uses this phrase. I don't know if you noticed it in the text. You probably did. It's almost comical as you read it out loud. A little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. And finally they say, what does he mean by a little while? And you can sense the frustration, even though we don't hear their voices. You can see it in the text that there's this rising frustration that they just don't know what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about joy that will come, and we're going to see that this morning. Basically, all we're going to see is this. In due time, through the work of Christ, God turns our sorrow into abundant joy. That's all you need to know this morning. And we'll look at the text and make that point and make the case that in due time, it's always, of course, in his timing... Through the work of Christ and through the work of Christ only, it is not through anything that anyone else does, but in the timing of God and through the finished work of Christ on the cross, he turns your sorrow, my sorrow, our pain, our grief, into a joy that is lasting and abundant and full. That is the promise that we have from him. So, at first... We don't see the topic of joy, but we do see the absence of joy because we see frustration in their lives. Just as when I was a little boy and I said to my mom, when are we going to go? In a little bit, and a little bit, and a little bit. There was no joy in that, that's for sure. And so we see that with the, the disciples as well in verses 16 through 19. Absence of joy is born of ignorance and frustration. Absence of joy is born of ignorance and frustration. By ignorance, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but in the basic meaning of the word, lack of knowledge or lack of information. When you don't have the information that is necessary, necessary or the ne- information that you think you need, you can become frustrated, and frustration is a state of joylessness. And they did not have the joy that he is moving toward in this passage that he's providing for us a fullness of joy. So Jesus is continuing on from where we left left off. In fact, if you were to look back at your text, uh, the last time anyone ever said anything to him was somewhere in the middle of chapter 14. And he has been speaking interruptedly since then in a discourse And just to catch up from where we were last week, he said, the spirit of truth is coming. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he speaks. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to you that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me continuing on with this idea of the Holy Spirit coming, the idea of him departing to go back to the Father in its necessity because it is to our advantage because then the Holy Spirit comes. And he continues by saying, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. What is he talking about? We know. We know what he's talking about. Like I said last week, we know more than what they knew at this time. We know what's coming. We know how the story unfolds. When he says, a little while, and you know will, will no longer see me, he's talking about his death. He's with them right now. And in a little while, they're not going to see him because he's going to be dead and he's going to be buried. And again, in a little while, you will see me again. His resurrection is pretty obvious to us. That's what he's talking about. Now, we'll see in a while... That resurrection inaugurates a whole new era of our relationship with God, the Father. But at this point, in simplest terms, he's talking about, I'm going to die and you won't see me. I'm going to rise from the dead and you will see me. They don't know this. They don't understand this. The other gospels, Jesus has talked about going and being killed and betrayed and all of these things. But it is, as we have said, this divine secret, if you will. He is holding from them the full truth until after the resurrection, until the day of Pentecost even, that they will really understand that he's going to die. I mean really die. And at this point, they don't understand it completely. And so some of the disciples then said to one another, so I'm not sure how this happened. They're in the upper room reclining at at a table There are just 12 of them at this point because Judas has gone to do his business. And he says this term, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And this triggers something. This is the first time anyone has spoken since chapter 14. And it seems like there's this little sidebar. Two or three of them start, their heads are down, and they're talking. What is he talking about? What does he mean by a little while? They say, what is this thing that he's telling us, a little while, and you will not see me and again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, they're starting to put some pieces together. He is leaving. He's going to go to the Father. But what does this a little while mean? So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We don't know what we're just talking about. We don't understand. They don't have any joy at this point for sure. They are frustrated. The subject of this passage is joy and at this point point we see they have no joy and God is in, and Jesus is going to show them how joy comes but hey like the original disciples we don't understand everything that Jesus says do you? Not all the time. We're given the Holy Spirit and we have the fulfilled scripture. Yes we have that but we often experience these doubts and misunderstandings when When we are in some kind of pain and suffering, when something is happening in our life that is difficult, when we are grieving, when we are in pain, we begin to doubt and we are joyless because we don't understand. Now that in no way negates or changes the truth or the effectiveness of God's word. In fact, it shows us this is the purpose of God's word to bring us out of that funk to bring us into a place of joy from the sorrow and the pain and the joylessness. But it's important for us to honestly admit when we struggle to understand. The disciples, I don't know what, what it was with them. They, they don't, it seems like they don't have the courage to say, hey, what are you talking about? Would you please explain? Instead, they're kind of talking amongst themselves, we don't understand, we don't understand they specifically want to know what it means a little while means so jesus says to them in verse 19 says this jesus knew that they wished to question him how did he know that well he's jesus he knows what they know and he knows what they don't know he knows what they need to know he knows what they're at where they're at and he is continually specifically giving them more and, and more information over time that is sufficient for them to understand what is going. But he knows that, they, that they're frustrated and he knows why they're frustrated. But not only that, it's pretty obvious. They're, he's talking and all of a sudden he sees the heads go down and they're kind of maybe in the typical Jewish way, gesticulating with their hands and everything and talking and he can see their body language and he knows something's up and he says, wait a minute. Do you want to ask me a question? And, they, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said, A little while and you will not see me, and a little while again and you will see me? Yes. He knows that that's what they're asking. So before we get to the specific answer that Jesus gives to them, I want us to just draw a couple lessons from what we see in the life of the, the uh, disciples and in this discourse so far. One lesson is this. When you are suffering. And when you are joyless. Focus on what you know. Rather than what you don't know. This is a lesson that I've given to you many times over the years. In a series on James. and a series on suffering. Because the scriptures are very clear. And we know that God works all things together for good. We know that. So why focus on what you don't know? Oh God, God, I don't know what you're, what you're doing. What are you trying, What is going on here? Why is this happening to me? We know that God works. He causes all things to work together for good. We know this. Focus on what you know. James 1, two, three and four. consider it all joy when you're suffering, when you're being tested. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And what's the next word? Knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What do you focus on? You know that the pain has purpose. You know that God is testing your faith. God will always test faith. If he doesn't test it, it's not known to be true faith, is it? He always tests faith. That's the purpose of trials. And to bring that joy bubbling to the top that we consider this a joyful event, whatever it is we're suffering or trial we're going through, because God has purpose in it. And that is our holiness, our righteousness, our maturity, our growth. It's not for nothing. Circumstances always challenge our understanding and it tempts us to doubt and to be joyless. So focus on what you know rather than than what you don't know when you are suffering. Is Jesus testing their faith? Absolutely. This whole process, this whole upper room, he's just he's giving them more and more uh, information. Just what they need to know when they need to know it, but it is all to pull out their faith, to evoke their faith and their trust in him over time, that they would trust him more and more. And that's what he's doing with you, whatever it is you're facing right now, testing your faith. And the second lesson is this. The Lord knows what you don't know, and he knows that you don't know it. So you can trust in him that whatever it is you don't know, he knows it. Whatever it is you think you need to know, he knows it. And, he, and he, here's the thing. He knows that you don't know it. He is gracious and gentle with you. He doesn't. What is wrong with you? Get it together. Snap out of it. He knows our frame. Psalm 30 says the psalmist says that we are but dust. Dust. He knows your weakness. He knows your, your fears. He knows every single one of those things. And he knows what you don't know. And he knows that you don't know it, but he cares for you. And he wants to grow you in this time. He wants to pull out your faith. If you knew everything, there would be no need for faith, right? That is the purpose of our fallen and continued imperfect state is that we're to grow and to be more and more like Jesus Christ he knows our frame and he is gracious with us and so I see I think we see that in Jesus response to them he gives he gives them more information but I think he's very gentle with them as well which brings us to our second point in verses 20 through 22. Lasting joy is born of short-term pain. Lasting joy is born of short-term pain. God uses pain to produce joy. God uses pain with a purpose. I know it seems counterintuitive, but it is the way of God. It is the way that things work. God uses pain to bring about joy in our lives. If we didn't know pain, we wouldn't know what joy was. And we have plenty of pain. We have plenty of pain in this world. Every single one of you has have things in your life right now that is bothering you, that you're dealing with, that is difficult, that you're struggling with could be an illness it could be a relationship problem financial problem you don't have any air conditioning i don't know what it may be but there's purpose in that the purpose of that short-term pain is a lasting joy so jesus says in verse 20 truly truly i say to you whenever jesus says truly truly saying to his disciples you listen up this is important that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. You'll weep and lament. In a little while, you will not see me. He sees, they're saying, well, what does a little while mean? He said, let me explain to you what this means. He doesn't give him a specific answer. In, it's a, a little while means th- two hours. A little while means th- three days. He doesn't say any of that. He talks more about the process of what's going to happen in a little while. In a little while, you won't see me. And guess what, hap- what will happen to them? You will weep and you will lament. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve. The, the, same, the word grieve is used throughout this. for It's translated differently for sorrow. But I think grief is, is, is good here because grief is the loss of someone who dies mainly. There's grief of losing a job, a relationship, um, uh, losing friends. There's all kinds of grief But there is that specific grief of losing someone who dies that you love. And that's what he's talking about. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Now, before we get to that second part, I want you to notice the phrase, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What does that mean? They hate him. The reason they hate us is because they hate him. So here's a lesson for us. Just as there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, so is there joy rejoicing on earth over one saint who falls. True? Yes, true. They dance on our graves sometimes when well-known Christians fall to sin or when well-known Christians die. Uh, you've seen it in, uh, in social media. It, it's, it's horrible. I hope they rot in hell. I've seen that over and over again many times when, when well-known Christians die and go home to be with the Lord. Why do they hate us? Because they hate Jesus. Rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents, it says in the book of Luke. But unfortunately on earth we have this scene where when God's people fall to sin, and so there's a cautionary tale for us, right? Keep your nose clean, be holy, walk with God. Make sure those hidden sins are made known to him so that you do not uh, crumble and fall like a a building that that has no foundation and falls to the ground. But a life based in holiness so that you don't fail, so that you don't fall, so that the world will not have an opportunity to dance on your grave. Going on, Jesus says this, but your grief will be turned into joy. You will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. This grief is turned into joy. It's turned into joy. This is the cross he's talking about. He's talking about the cross. At the cross, there's a a turn of events, a reversal of fortunes. This idea is common in Scripture. The the pattern of the cross. Joseph sold into bondage. They wanted him to die. He's rotting in prison. What happens? A, a, a resurrection, if you will. God brings him back for a purpose. What they meant for for evil, God meant for good. Haman and Mordecai. Well, that's a story of a a turn of events, right? Uh, Mordecai wants the Jews to die. He wants Esther to die. He wants Haman to die. He gets the edict to kill all the Jews. And what happens? The very cross, if you will, the very mode of execution this this great stake that, that Haman was going to be impelled upon, Mordecai is. It's a turn of events. The cross of Christ, Satan thought he had him once and for all. And what happened? He came forth from the grave. God promises he will turn grief into joy, pain, into joy. This is not a promise to solve all of our problems. He's not saying that. But it's a promise that the cross of Christ gives to you the ultimate joy over the original cause of pain, sin. You have joy because of that. And he explains it with a little parable in verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. But because her hour has come, But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because the joy that a child has been born into the world. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Labor pains. We we like euphemisms today, right? They're not labor pains. They're contractions. Right, ladies? But what do contractions cause? Ladies, tell me. Pain. They cause pain. It is what it is. And... You know, I joke that uh, I've been through this childbirth thing six times, and it's a piece of cake and uh And I say that jokingly, you know that because I have experienced vicariously every t- contraction, every labor pain that Tara went through and, uh, and uh, the and that long labor you you have these long hours of just sitting waiting for something to happen, and you have times of peace punctuated by ah intense pain, right. And then you have the transition time. Oh, please, honey, I need you. Don't touch me. I need you. Don't touch me. And I never got it right. But then you have the effacement and the crowning and the the head is born and all of it. And you forget the hours of pain. Why? Because a baby is born. That pain is turned to joy. And that's what he's talking about with the cross of Christ. In a little while, you will not see me because I'm going to die. In a little while, you will see me because I'm coming back to life. And that pain of grief that you have for a little while, which is going to be there for three days only in comparison, they will have a joy that will be lasting. In fact, that's what he says in verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now but I will see you again. Notice he changes it because before he says, in a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. And now he says, this grief and pain that you have of my death will be turned to joy because I will see you. The emphasis is upon his personally coming to them and that brings great joy. The very thing that caused the pain for the disciples became the source of the greatest joy, the cross. The joy that Jesus offers is not bound by this world, is not bound by circumstances, it's not bound by time or any other delimiting uh, element. And he says in the last part of verse 22, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one. The answer to the question of a little while is what? Is That their time of grief will be relatively short. He's not going to give them particularly, particular times. Their time of grief and suffering and sorrow is going to be relatively short. While the ensuing joy is going to be boundless and lasting. He puts no limit on that at all. It will last. And no one can take it from you. No one can take the joy of the cross and the resurrection of Christ that you have because of your faith in him. No one can take that from you. Got that? No one, not ever, not ever. Not anyone. See this in the scriptures. Psalm 35. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. God comes through. God comes through for you, for me. Psalm 3011. You have turned for me, my mourning into dancing. Isn't that a lovely picture? those who are mourning over loss and over destruction and, and, and pain and sorrow and guilt and all the things, and God's uh, even even in the in the Psalm, um, God's very discipline. You have taken my mourning and you have turned it into dancing. You've taken sorrow and turned it into joy. You've taken grief and turned it into abounding, lasting joy. One of my favorites is this, 2 Corinthians 4:16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. What's the therefore points back to the resurrection of Christ. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How many of you know that your outer man is decaying? That's why I did not do Coeur d'Alene triathlon this morning. My knee hurts. Anyway, we all experience it. Even if you are young and in relatively good health, you know you get sick, you get injured. We have young people with broken legs and feet and arms all the time because our outer man is decaying. But our inner man, the inner self, there's an, an immaterial part of us that God is always growing. Our 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 body will be raised from the dead, yes, but in the meantime, he is growing our, our inner self. And then he says this, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory and, far beyond all comparison. In a little while, you will not see me. There will be grief and pain. But in a little while, you will see me and lasting joy. Momentary light affliction. You could have lifelong pain, yes. In comparison to eternity, he says, it's just when you get there, you're going to see it was just a short time. In relationship, it was brief. It was just for a moment. Compared to eternity, it is not for all time, and it produces something far greater, far beyond the suffering of now, an eternal weight of glory. The weight of glory is that uh, uh, the word glory, again, means the the heaviness, the weightiness of God, and and also that, that shining brilliance of all that he is. And every person in this room who suffers and suffers well is producing something that will last for eternity, that will shine and give glory to God, and you will be part of that. It is part of your experience now for eternity. But he says in verse 18, while we look not, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, or the things which are seen are temporal But the things which are not seen are eternal. He's not saying don't pay attention to life. He's just saying your gaze, your focus, your life cannot be wrapped up in the pain. It has to be looking ever forward to eternity. And what the pain is producing, it is a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. While we look to the things that are eternal and we have a perspective that is beyond this life so he doesn't give an answer to the question specifically how long is a little while how long is a little bit it's not 24 hours it's not 3 days it is momentary in comparison to eternal glory that's the answer Instead, he gives perspective. It's proportionate. He gives the process. The process is pain turning into joy. It's difficult in the meantime. The product is a joy that is lasting. He produces something. So nothing is lost with God. Everything that happens to you, he is using for his glory to grow you into his likeness. And Jesus wants to lift their spirits and he wants to give them hope in the moment and and the stark reality of his departure and all the things that are coming to them. He needs them to know that it is a divine necessity that he goes away. It's better that he does because the spirit will come And ultimately, a joy will come that they will not even begin to ever comprehend until it's there there with them. It is a joy that is coming to them, but it is paid for by the life of Jesus Christ, by his willing sacrifice, despising the shame for the joy set before him. A couple of lessons. to be exact. The Lord gives answers that may not be specific, but are sufficient. He did not answer specifically how long is a little while. He didn't do that for them, but he gave them something more. And he does that for us too. Um, Make sure that when you are in pain, make sure that when you are in trial, suffering, grief, whatever it may be, that you not get hung up on specific answers that you want from God. Instead, accept the answers that he gives, because what he does give is sufficient. And remember, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We know that he is using that trial to make us like his son. Focus on what you know once again. But every answer that he gives to us in the scripture is sufficient for us. Second of all, this is just a summary of what I've been saying. The cross of Christ turns defeat into victory, darkness into light, slavery into freedom, and sorrow into joy. It's the cross of Christ. It turns everything around. Everything that is broken in this world. Is the answer to every problem, every societal problem. It is the answer to racism. It is the answer to to political unrest. It is the the answer even to earthquakes and buildings falling down. It is the answer to all questions. It's found in him. And the very thing that causes the pain, sin, becomes the cause of the joy because sin is taken care of. It is nailed to the cross. Third, the joy the cross produces is deep-seated and lasting and remains in the midst of any sorrow of this life. I know that's long, but I want you to understand that. The joy that he brings is, is inside of you from him by the word of God And it cannot be taken away. It is deep seated. You can experience. The whole point is you experience in the middle of the pain, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the grief, you experience it at any time. No one can take it away from you. You can let go of it by sin. You can let go of it by focusing on your circumstances. You can let go of it by allowing, you know, focusing on the world. And all the things that the world is trying to draw you away from. But if you focus on the promises and upon what the cross holds for you now and for the future into eternity. No one can take away that joy from you. No one. And it is a joy that is more lasting than the pain. The pain is temporary but the joy is lasting. And whatever is causing you sorrow, whatever is causing you pain right now, whatever it may be, you can experience lasting, abiding joy right now in the midst of whatever it is you are suffering, you're struggling with, no matter how difficult it is. Christians have, throughout all of Christian history, Experience that joy in the midst of sorrow and you can as well as long as you trust in him because that is, that is the whole point of this exercise is he is drawing out their faith. All sorrow, all grief, all pain is ultimately caused by sin and ultimately defeated at the cross. Got that? All sin, all pain, all sorrow, all grief, ultimately it's caused by sin and it is it is ultimately utterly defeated at the cross of Christ What is the source of death of cancer of broken families what is the source of persecution in the world what is the, the source of the world hating Jesus and, and our nation being so divided? What is the, the source of, of heat waves and buildings falling down and just collapsing with hundreds of people in them? What is the source of that? Ultimately, it is that we live in a broken world caused by sin. And the only answer is the cross which utterly defeats that sin. Otherwise, what is the answer? Where is the hope? Somebody tell me. There isn't any. It's only found in him. So in verses 23 and 24, we see this, fullness of joy, fullness of joy. It's born of an intimate relationship with God. As we have a close relationship with God and we're filled to all the fullness of him, of him, and we draw closer to him by everything that Christ has accomplished at the cross, we experience a fullness of joy that is part of that relationship with him. Verses 23 and 24, I know many of your Bibles say there's a division there, and now Jesus is talking about prayer. Yes, he's talking about prayer, but he's talking about prayer in relationship to what he just said, because he just says, in that day... The day of his resurrection, when they see him again in that day, you will not question me about anything. So when you see me, you're not going to be questioning me anymore about, well, what do you, what do you mean by in a little while? Those questions are going to be dissolved. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the father for anything in my name, he will give it to you until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. In that new day, there is a new way in which the disciples would relate to God. It would be through one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. It would be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Before this, it didn't, it, it wasn't that way. They could always talk to God, but it wasn't through Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. The resurrection inaugurated a new era a new era of a new relationship of people with God in which they could approach the Father through the name of the Son and through His person and through His work. And so our standing with Him is based upon Christ and we can ask for whatever we need in the midst of times of sorrow. And it is the resurrection that inaugurates that whole new day. In the present verses, the joy and the answers to prayer are all still dependent upon them. Jesus completing his mission. But before they've not talked to Jesus or not talked to the Father through the Son. And so uh, we, we pull together Jesus' teaching about prayer so far. He has, he, has said, he has said this is the last time that he talks about prayer in the Upper Room Discourse. Praying in the name of Jesus, he says it every time. What does that mean in the name of Jesus? He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He is God incarnate. He lived a sinless life. He taught truth and he performed miracles. He came to glorify the Father. He is fulfilling the mission of his death and resurrection to redeem us. He is now glorified at the right hand of God. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, because he has completed the work of redemption. And so when he says, now you can ask of the Father through the Son anything, he will give it to you for your joy. For your joy. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Fullness of joy becomes a condition of prayer. Just like you ask in his name, you ask to his glory, you, you, you ask him uh, according to his will, and you ask for the purpose of joy, because he says, so that your joy may become full. Pray in his name, pray to the Father according to his will, for his glory, and lastly, for your own benefit to his joy. They had not previously asked the Father anything. Now, by the way, obviously he's not talking about asking God for anything that you want. It's not what he's talking about. Remember the context here. He's going away. Important that he goes away because the Holy Spirit comes. They're going to grieve. They're going to be in sorrow. But... All that it will accomplish is so that they will have a deeper, fuller, different relationship with God the Father than anyone has ever ever had before. And so they ask on the basis of that. It puts things in perspective. Some lessons. First, you need to know this. God desires you experience joy to the fullest. That's how this passage ends. So that your joy may be made full. He wants you to be joyful. And if you're thinking, well, God doesn't like me, God hates me, my life isn't worth anything, he wants you to be full of joy. He doesn't want you to think that way because there are lies. This is what he says about you. He wants you to experience this great joy. And it is through prayer. The most intimate thing that you can do is praying to the Father Prayer is, I believe, the most intimate relationship, spiritual relationship that we have. And the joy is not in the thing given, but it is in the relationship of asking. Because you are now in a new relationship where you are able to ask him for anything, and he wants to do whatever will bring you joy. And he may say no because it won't bring you joy. He may say no because it doesn't, uh, it's not according to his will. He may say no because it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's not uh, going to bring glory to the name of the Son. But if all those line up and the last one is that it will bring joy to you, he gladly answers your prayers to him. So the conclusion is this. When it comes to your prayers, in view of all this, pray requests that will most deepen your relationship with God. We're talking about praying at a higher level than than just give me a safe trip across town. Lord, provide enough money for this. Although we've talked about this before, praying at a higher level than just the, the menial things. Yes, pray for those things. But ultimately, make your prayers about this. Pray for guidance. We go back to the Holy Spirit will guide you. He will guide you into truth. Pray for guidance. Pray for truth. Pray for understanding. Pray for eternal perspective. That is the thing that he was giving them in this passage. An eternal perspective which gave them joy beyond this world. And pray with purpose his glory. And your joy. In fact, his glory becomes your joy. It does. Hebrews 12.2 says this. And as I read it, I want you to prepare your communion elements. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He knew the joy that was set before him, knowing that he was able to despise the shame that came his way, and he wants us to do the same. Don't lose heart because he died for you.